1: Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson and I'm a host for the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today I'm going to be talking with Timothy Yang about his book A Medicated Emperor, Empire, The Pharmaceutical Industry and Modern Japan, which is out from Cornell in 2021. This is a case study of Hoshi Pharmaceutical, Seiyaku, a Japanese drug company that exemplified the push for a modern culture of self-medication, as Yang puts it. The history of Hoshi is tightly intertwined with state promotion of Western biomedicine beginning in the late 19th century, but it also reveals tensions between pharmaceutical manufacturers' self-promotion as a humanitarian endeavor for greater social good, and their profit motive, on the other hand. As the title suggests, A Medicated Empire is also a book that expands our understanding of the production and consumption of drugs, both licit and illicit, in the Japanese Empire. It explores topics including how companies like Hoshi exploited concerns about national defense and autarky to secure lucrative governmental support in times of crisis on the one hand, and also the uh, differential marketing and regulation of pharmaceuticals such as opium to Japanese and colonial subjects on the other. In the uh, second half of the book, these elements are central to the story of Hoshi's fall and rise the opium scandal which crippled and bankrupted the company in the early 1930s, and then its resurrection and profiteering as Japan geared up for war later in the decade. Throughout, Yang is sensitive to the tensions between state-led national strengthening, corporate profit motives, and the individual desire for uh, self-optimization, health optimization. Um, And also he's sympathetic to the imperial context in which the particular story of Hoshi played out. Uh, Of course, this book will be of interest to historians of Japan, uh, business, etc., as well as STS, perhaps. But as we discuss in the podcast, many of its core issues, such as trust in pharma, government interventions in public health, etc., are more salient today than ever. All right, Dr. Yang, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Um, so as you probably know, uh, the sort of traditional first question we ask everybody is, how did you get involved in uh, the research that became this case study of uh, Hoshi Pharmaceutical, this Japanese uh, uh, drug company, um, and its sort of you know business history, social history, and medical history, uh, the book that we're going to talk about today?
0: Um. Yeah, great question. And first of all, um, thank you for having me on this podcast. It's an honor. Um, and hopefully I'll have a good discussion. Um, but please call me Tim. And um, yeah, how I first got interested in this was, um, it actually began as a history of medicine in colonial Taiwan, actually. And that was what I wanted to research. And I came across a diary, um, not really a diary, of um, a Japanese doctor named Oda Toshio. And he he was writing about going to Java um, for an expedition to examine um, how to cultivate cinchona, which is the raw material for quinine. And I thought, huh, this is kind of cool, right? Um, And it turned out that he wrote that it was sponsored by this company called Hoshi Pharmaceuticals. And I thought, wow, this is kind of an interesting sort of tidbit and something to further explore. And as I began researching more and more about this company, I learned that it was um, the company of Hoshishinichi's father. I learned that it had an outsized sort of presence in the early 20th century in Japan. Um, one of the major pharmaceutical companies was involved in opium scandal. And perhaps most importantly was the fact that um, it was a company that had basically failed. And a lot of um, companies, right, the, the whole idea of a company history, shashi, right, is its own sort of um, genre in Japanese history and all pharmaceutical companies write their own history. And I realized that um, there was um, a trove of documents at um Hoshiyaka Daigaku in Tokyo, right? Hoshi Pharmacology University, or just called Hoshi University, I believe, in English. And they um, allowed me very, very graciously to look at a lot of these documents. So well, this is a great way to sort of talk about um, a history of... Um, medicine through the vector of a business.
1: Yeah, that's very really cool. I didn't realize that that had been the origin of the projects, but now, like, from what I know of the book, that makes a lot of sense. It's a really interesting sort of uh, entryway uh, into this case study of Hoshi Pharmaceutical. Um, and so I want to jump right into this. Now, I'm just going to toss out a bunch of questions at you. So filter them as you will. But to get us started in this sort of big picture, right? I mean, you're arguing, if I understand it, that Hoshi is, um, and you said it was you know, sort of well-connected, right? But it was probably the greatest beneficiary of Japanese state sponsorship uh, of medicine as a tool and also as a symbol of modernization and civilization. So if I take take your meaning here, right, this company history of Hoshi can tell us a lot about medicine, about the development of modern Japan. And I think, you know, also, as you suggested with uh, the reference to Taiwan already, uh, questions about empire, right, and how that fits in. So to start off, I'd love it if you could give us a general sense of why this case study is so important um, and explain a bit about the the company um, and the circumstances that that it, it sort of grew up in and thrived in, right? And and the whole drug industry did. Um, so government agendas, secular factors, etc. And you sketch a lot of this out in your introduction um, and go into a deeper dive in part one, right? Um, and that, that part one, by the way, it's chapters one and two, it's looking more sort of in depth at uh, state industry relations uh, and the origins of the company. So uh, what I'm asking, I guess, is you know what's the place of medicine, especially this sort of particular modern version of Western biomedicine in the Japanese states, product of modernization and civilization, both at home in Japan, in the home islands, the metropole, and in the empire. And how are companies such as Hoshi benefiting from and also influencing that agenda? Um, And you write that the pharmaceutical industry promotes medical knowledge and shapes patterns of consumption through the manufacturing and sales of medicines. And if that's true, then in order, this is in order to sort of manufacture a matter of fact, common sense belief in modern medicine as a humanitarian endeavor for greater social good. Again, I'm quoting you here. Um, if, if all that's true, then how did the motivations and the self-interest of companies like Hoshi diverge from, as well as uh, sort of overlap with these state visions for health and medicine in modern Japan? So I'm sorry to like toss this giant pot of questions at you, but uh, take the spaghetti off the wall and see what you can make of it.
0: Yeah, it sounds great to me. Um, yeah, If I diverge a bit too much, just please interrupt. Um, so yeah, why, why is this case study important? Well, um, I mean, it, it's a single company, right? But I use it for a couple of reasons. First, I mentioned it before in the um, earlier question that it was a company that failed. So there's a way to actually get into um, a lot of the sources without... Um, having this company tell its own sort of narrative, right? But perhaps more importantly was that um, Hoshi had um, these connections to the government, largely through Goto um, and the fact that the medicines that it produced, so medicines like quinine, which i talked about before, but also um, opium-based narcotics, um, cocaine as well, and, and importantly, patent medicines, which are kind of like over-the-counter medicines today um, that were seen as being quack remedies in the 19th, 20th century to Japan's medical authorities. All these different types of medicines allows me to tell a story using Hoshi as an anchor to talk about how um, medicine um, as a business um, was part of um, the state's agenda for uh, medical modernization, right? So um, in the sense, Hoshi is an anchor for different chapters that are sort of commodity centered histories, right. And questions of, um, why are some medicines seen as being too dangerous for a population? Right. And that's the opium, you know, chapter that I have. Um, and also why are medicines seen as being, um, perhaps too dangerous because they're too consumerist, right. And that's the patent medicine sort of idea of these are remedies that are, are sold, um, to, you know, for profit, right. And they might not necessarily have the health benefits that the company claims. So issues of marketing and like trust come in here. Right. And you know, issues of medical professionalization. And how do you regulate these things? Right. Um, and um, I also talk about the production of quinine. Right. And how Hoshi had these plantations in Taiwan, actually, which was the result of that um, expedition. Right. Which I talked about concern um, of. Taiwanese medical author- or not Taiwanese, but Japanese colonial medical authorities in Taiwan going to Java and then going back to Taiwan to learn how to um, produce cinchona um, right in these um, plantations. So I thought it's a, it's really a a good anchor. I thought right, and I like I like telling narratives, and I thought it'd be a good book in this sense to have it sort of, you know, contain this history of different types of medicines through this one company. Then the company also right, I said before. Um, you know, if you read some of non um, nonfiction works, he talks about this company a lot, actually, right? Um, through his father, and um, so I thought this would be an interesting sort of story to tell, um, in that sense. And um, you know, it's it, it works to me at least because um, I wrote the book, obviously, but in in a sense that you know, in, in Japanese history, um, there's really a, a fantastically rich scholarship of uh, medicine right, of modern medicine and um, colonial medicine, right. And if you expand it to East Asia, right, you know, really fantastic works that still are coming out, right. And some of the first works were like Ruth Rogowski's hygienic modernity, right, and, um, you know, these sorts of things, Susan Burns and all these other like fantastic works, really. So um, I I thought like this would be a good angle to look at, right, to see what is the relationship um, that businesses have to these public health regimes, you know, through Hoshi, both um, in the Japanese home islands and in the colonies, right? So that'd be kind of cool, right? And um, in the sense, what was the Japanese state's project um, of medicine? Well, it was about um, civilizing, in a sense, through public health, um, its people, right? Uh, Japanese people, but also um, those in the empire abroad, right? I opened the book with a quote from Goto Shinpei himself, who says that um, you know, other nations use religion to help them govern, but, um, you know, because Japan doesn't have, you know, this unifying religion, I mean, he's he's overstating things, obviously, and this is all rhetoric, obviously, and, like, you know, those who talk about state Shinto are like, uh-uh, but, but to him, you know, he's sort of saying, well, you know, medicine has this proselytizing sort of aspect as well, right, which is both rhetorical, right, but also... Uh, material in the sense that, you know, you're, you're curing people from disease. So maybe it's really convincing if you want to legitimate your rule, right? Because my sense is at a, at a sort of tangible, fundamental level, most people don't want to get sick. I think fundamentally is that. So it seems to be one of these more convincing ways to me, at least of, um, claiming legitimacy. Right. And it's part and parcel of, you know, a very rich scholarship of, um, you know, biopower, right. Of, you know, why is it so important for states, um, you know, to have, you know, modern public health regimes, well, it you have to have strong bodies, right? Otherwise, you can't have a strong industrial society, right? That's the minimum, actually, right? And if they're unhealthy, then um, they won't be productive, right? And this also transposes um, to war in the sense that, you know, soldiers have to be healthy, soldiers have to um, be ready to fight in this sense, right? So, um, right, uh, I, I thought that, looking at a company and its involvement in these sorts of things um would be really interesting right and i I say that you know throughout the book the uh company right and the industry itself works hand in hand with um the aims of the state but also as you point out right it also subverts the aims as well in many ways right and the reason i say that is well first there's profit motives involved obviously right and this is the the fundamental question of medicine as a um for-profit business versus a practice which is supposedly fundamentally humanitarian but also as we know also um, you know a business as well right doctors are you know also entrepreneurs right um, but fundamentally it's a um, the, the problem of um, you know for-profit for motive doesn't necessarily align with the humanitarian aspect of saving lives right so that's one way that um, there is this divergence in the aims of The industry and the state. And the other is, you know, simply because um, the medicines themselves, right, are sort of unstable, I guess, sort of, uh, should I put this? They are not necessarily objects that completely cure disease, we'll say, right? They have side effects, right? And some medicines have um, characteristics that actually may provide more harm than anything else, right? So Opium, for example, right, can um, you know, was used as um a way to um alleviate problems of malaria, a way to, you know, um sort of starve off hunger, etc. All those sorts of like medicinal properties of it. Also it's obviously a soporific sort of characteristics of um you know a, a narcotic as well. Um, but on the other hand, it can also be a poison as we know, right? Um so um that's why I thought this was so interesting to sort of look at all of these sorts of issues of a commodity center history, but also a business history in many ways, right? Um, in relation to the development of um, the Japanese state's public health regime um, in the home islands and um, in its developing colonies.
1: Yeah. And uh, thank you for uh, going into some detail there that, that gives us that big picture of what the study is all about. And I guess, you know, something that you, uh, Avoided talking about a little bit here is uh, that you you must. It must have been a little bit strange to publish this book uh, right now uh, when questions about the uh, uh, efficacy and uh, trust issues with medicine, and questions about profit motive, and uh, so on and so forth, are clearly on many people's minds. Uh, I will. I will not force you to talk about this you don't have to if you don't want to, but I just want to say that for for you know for for our listeners, right there's there's a, a sort of terrifying relevance. Um, I feel a little bit like uh, you know I interviewed uh, Jacobine Arch a couple of years ago on the basically the week that uh, the that Japan left uh, the you know, the whaling uh, 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 treaty at the time. Um, and so it's sort of that same thing of like what happens when your work becomes really relevant in ways you didn't expect it to be? I suppose you must have been thinking about this for uh, a little while now, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean that's a great question and something I've, I've encountered um, actually. And and one of my fears is that this will be read as an anti-vax screed, right? Of like, oh, those evil pharmaceutical companies. But you know, this is what history of science does, right? And there is something fundamentally um, problematic about the pharmaceutical industry and the health services industry, right? Which we know of in the U.S., especially with issues of insurance, obviously. And you know, like my, my when my daughter gets sick, right, you take a she got sick over the summer, and um, we live really close to the hospital, right? And we called an ambulance, and it was like, you know, it was, I could walk there in 10 minutes, but we were so worried about her. And the ambulance cost, like, $4,000 for, like, a two-minute ride. And you're like, what is going on here? So it's relevant, right, in many ways. And, um, you know, certainly when, when I wrote this book, um, it was um, largely – in the time of the, um, you know, the heroin epidemics and, you know, um, when I was writing the introduction, um, you know, what was the big issue with drugs? It was the Sacklers, right. And OxyContin. Right. So that was what I was thinking about. But I mean, yeah, it, it's interesting you mentioned Jacobina Arch's work and, um, and how she was said that like, yeah, suddenly, you know, the, your book has relevance in a different sort of time that you write it. Um, and certainly that's the case here. Right. And we see this and, and in the time of COVID, you know, th- these issues are on the minds of a lot of people. But, you know, post-COVID and, th- and we will hopefully get past this pandemic. Um, knock on wood. Um, I don't know when these issues will still be there. Right. Of you know, pharmaceutical companies and, you know, the fact that um, there is a fundamental problem in the fact that modern medicine has been created um, as um industrial capitalism has been created so they've been you know completely intertwined and that's the problem right that i'm dealing with fundamentally here
1: yeah. And, and, and just, you know, I, I found this to be a, a useful uh, look at these very current problems precisely because we were able uh, in your book to have a little bit of distance. Right. It's one of the nice things about um, a history that is relevant to the now is that it gives you some perspective on the now um, that is sometimes hard to get. And I guess also for myself, as you know, we've talked about this, um, but, you know, I as somebody who was thinking about nutrition, uh, and modernity, uh, you know, there, there's a, a real similarity sort of overlap in the kinds of problematic that we're dealing with. And so, again, getting a little bit of uh, distance and perspective from your book was very helpful. Um, I do want to keep going, though, and jump into part two, um, which is called Marketing Medicines and Medicinal Infrastructures. And we've started to address some of the issues that you deal with here, uh, the marketing of consumer medications. Specifically, this is after World War I and the sort of pharma boom, which is prompted by a government intervention up to that point, and especially during World War I. So let's look at um, chapter three, uh, which is called Marketing, a Culture of Self-Medication. Um, and you're looking not at uh, prescription drugs here, right, but at Hoshi's bestseller uh, over-the-counter drug, uh, the Hoshi Digestive Medicine, um, in order to understand the creation of what you and I think very uh, cogently call this culture of self-medication. Um, and this is part of a class of, uh, of medicines, of curatives, which are called in Japanese, byyaku. Um, and this is the term you used earlier, it's of patent medicines, right? And this this category predates the introduction of Western biomedicine into Japan, but it remains a popular and profitable category uh, even after that introduction of Western medicine um, and its sort of official sanction and promotion, right? And so on the other hand, these bayaku are denigrated by the government as irrational, exploitative, sort of uh, anti-modern in a sense. Can you tell me more about the medicines um, which as you've said are the quote most blatantly consumerist right of all medicines how does the history of uh, the marketing of Bayaku in the 20s after World War one help us to understand the dynamics between nation uh, individual and corporate, health, right? In other words, what are the tensions between these top-down state projects of national strengthening, uh, individuals' desire to optimize their own health, and then companies' profit motives, right? So three different kinds of health all at play.
0: Um, Yeah, that's a really good question. And I guess I'll begin by just talking a little bit about what the term Bayaku means. Um, And it's, it's always a problem with translation. And you know, Isn't necessarily you know, is patent medicine necessarily the the right translation and and I chose that to sort of um, as a way to emphasize the uh, global relevance of this case um, because the social significance of um, bayaku in Japan in the area that are in the time period that I discuss in the book. Um, seems very similar to um, patent medicines elsewhere. Like one of the reasons for why the FDA was created in 1906, right? was in reaction to 19th century snake oil salesmen, et cetera. And um, it's this um, idea that, um, you know, medicine um, was um, seen as being not trustworthy, right? So um, one important um, goal of you know one of the uh, primary uh, stakeholders which you discussed you know um, in the question like of the medical authorities of the state was you know, how do you build trust right And if you have um, untrustworthy sort of medicines that's a big deal right so and that's where this fear of um, you know the marketplace interfering into um, medicine was um, so um, visceral to a lot of these medical authorities right so, Um, So Bayaku, to go back, um, you know, they had this, in the Edo period, they were quite popular, right? And they were seen as um, things that um, people took um, really to, um, yeah, obviously to to cure um, diseases and other things. And it was part of a vibrant commercial culture in the Edo period as well. Um, So those Symbolisms continued um, into modern bayaku in a way as well, even though uh, much of the modern bayaku, um, modern as in after, you know, uh, Meiji, 19th, 20th century stuff, um, they were advertised as being explicitly modern most of the time. But there is sort of the slippage between, you know, what is necessarily traditional and what is necessarily modern. And it's also like this sub-argument that I kind of make of, you know, this kind of sheds light on the degree to which, you know, Edo was, you know, you know, the sprouts of you know capitalist modernity etc etc but anyway so so byaku had you know the connotation of being you know traditionalist but also being consumerist as well which is like a double whammy in the eyes of the medical authorities of being bad because what they're trying to promote right is you know modern medicine through you know um you know um, medicines that are scientifically tested right and They are then, you know, listed in a pharmacopoeia, right? So people know, right, that it can be trustworthy, right? And medical sellers, right? You know, the Bayaku salesmen obviously are against a lot of these sorts of things, right? So um, a vibrant Bayaku industry developed in places like Toyama um, Prefecture, um, I didn't mention in my book, also in the footnotes actually, um, Omi as well, um, et cetera, et cetera, right? And these people, um, they felt, you know, sort of challenged and threatened by this new regime. And they found ways also to um, change the marketing and change also the um, types of medicines that they produced also. And they continue to thrive as well. So so Bayaku had this sort of symbolism of um, being um, not scientific, being traditional, right? Being um, untrustworthy, and you have the sellers trying to, um, you know, change that fact, right? And related to this is also the issue of medical professionalization and how um, medical doctors as well were trying to legitimate their own um, businesses and their own worth, etc. Um, medic- medicine as a profession and um, the way it sheds light on um, how public health. Uh, develops and spreads um, and modern medicine spreads in Japan is that um, a lot of you know what we consider as being um, you know modern about you know biomedicine that was largely limited to urban centers, these urban metropolises right and medical doctors tend to congregate in places where people could pay them generally speaking so i mean uh, there's also this factor that the bayaku um, they Provided, um, and this is why it became so popular in places like Toyama. Provided, um, sort of a form of healthcare for hard-to-reach rural regions in many ways, right? So, um, yeah, it's this topic was about, or or this chapter was about how Hoshi intervened in this dynamic here, and it it was a um, medicine, it was a patent medicine producer originally, right? Um, and Hoshi Hoshihajime is the founder, and he got the idea of producing medicines um, during his time in the United States. And he thought that this was um, you know, in the U.S. Um, you know, patent medicines were a, a vibrant marketplace, that was something that medical regulators wanted to stamp down, like the American Medical Association, other sorts of things. But he felt that well, you know, if if they cure disease and people are are constantly going to like buy them no matter what, because you know they consider health to be really important. So um, Hoshi intervenes in this and produces medicines and began with the patent medicine marketplace. And Hoshi's um, whole um, advertising scheme was about the fact that, you know, his medicines were contrary to these other guys, right? Trustworthy because they were scientific, right? They're coded as being Western, coded as being, Um, cosmopolitan, they provide this hygienic sort of lifestyle, this sort of thing. Um, So I I talk about, um, you know, how Hoshi then, right, is trying to obviously sell medicines, right, but then doing so by saying, well, look at the, you know, um, look at what the state sort of needs and sort of reading the tea leaves of how there is a privileging of modern medicine against other forms. I haven't really talked about Chinese or herbal remedies, etc. But certainly those where um you know not seen as being something the state wanted to support right um in the the uh, pre-war sort of era so um hoshi thought that um it would be very profitable to to make these sorts of medicines and this sort of
1: yeah and i thought this was interesting i mean it reminded me of some other work on um modernization in japan uh in the you know late 19th early 20th century that sort of looking at things more, uh, on a continuum or, uh, looking at the hybridity of, uh, and the coexistence, I guess maybe is the better word for this, of, um, different, uh, regimes of practice and knowledge, right? Now, for example, um, something that I, uh, was rereading recently is, um, uh, Josephson's book on the uh, invention of religion from a decade ago, right? Where this, you know, he's, where he's sort of talking about the, um, this not a sort of suddenly there's, you know, suddenly there's modernity, right. And suddenly there's science. And suddenly there's a new regime of uh, knowledge and discourse, but rather that there's this long period of coexistence in which you have many different forms, uh, you know, that, that, Sort to a, to a kind of contemporary sense of of logic don't seem like they should be able to comfortably coexist. but of course, in fact, they do. and and I think Joseph is making a larger point about the contemporary world that that we also live in that world. But um, this was what was interesting to me was this idea of the the digestive medicine, the ichoyaku. I mean, they they're still, Popular medicines in Japan—you can buy them everywhere. I mean, we just gave some to our rabbit when we had to move him on an airplane, right? Uh, and it was recommended by the vet, the veterinarian, uh, and hey, the bunny survived, right? So <laughs> who am I? Who am I to argue, right? But there's there's this question about like the, 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 an evidence-based uh, double-blind testing regime of knowledge and practice versus these other forms of knowledge, and I think you, you've you know brought out this tension that then is also you know, a single company engaging in both uh, is very much about this capitalist profit motive that you're talking about and about this sort of ways to find different avenues right into people's medicine cabinets and into right. their everyday lives mm-hmm. yeah
0: yeah yeah i think that's a that's a great point i think you brought it up a lot more eloquently than i did um yeah, definitely in the sense of um hybridity of like the coexistence of these sort of things and if you talk about bayaku and using hoshi to sort of talk about a a broader sort of history of bayaku right um that sheds light on the limits also of of where modern medicine you know develops and how it develops right and who has access right to these sorts of things and um yeah it's and how do you sort of choose if you're a consumer between these different types of things right and and hoshi right it's you know through the digestive medicine was trying to do everything essentially right it's is this medicine that um, I thought was so interesting? Well, first of all, because it was its most profitable medicine far and away, um, other than its um, narcotics, um, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, um, at the end of this podcast, but um, also the fact that um, it, it was a medicine that it coded as being both modern, mostly modern. So it's um, basically Tums or Alka-Seltzer, sodium bicarbonate and something else I'm forgetting right now, um, which are actually modern for that time period, actually. Um But also it said that had these, you know, sort of natural herbal ingredients. of like all sorts of things, kind of like a a Heinz 57 sort of thing, right? That was sort of advertising in a way. Um, So I'm sort of deliberately sort of hinting at, you know, like the the comparisons of, you know, this is not that different, you know, um, from other places. But um, and and we see, I think, with with the Ichoyaku, and I trace this later on, how it's the, the advertising changes in different, you know, time periods right and is it going to emphasize you know different things of um, you know, cosmopolitanism and sort of this um, comparison of japan being as modern as these other countries or do you want to emphasize more like you know the uniqueness of the japanese digestive tracts or something like that right and and it allows you know what the, the suggestive medicine allows hoshi to do that actually right in certain ways and so i guess yeah it's this sort of uh, um this vagueness was what was really interesting to me when i was looking at, at this and how um, you know, she's trying to you know obviously make money but then um, you know through the digestive medicine you know it's it's part of um, this um, health care um, regimen of self medication right which is you know this is how people often um, get their medical care I mean that's sort of what, what fundamentally is going on here of and this happened you know, way back before Meiji, right? And it happened certainly in the early 20th century Japan, certainly today, et cetera, right? So that's what you mentioned, the, the, the cat and the choyaku, right? And, and these sorts of things. And, and Japan has this vibrant and still vibrant, right, um, industry, right, of, of this, um, of these sort of um, ebayaku, of, of over-the-counters and
1: um, this sort of thing. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, marketing, which is actually a really great segue into the other question I wanted to ask you about this chapter in particular, right? Um, Because you're talking about marketing, uh, but not just in Japan, also in the colonies. Uh, And this is, I think, an interesting place where um, you're seeing an intersection of nationalism, modernization, empire, pharmaceuticals. Um, And in particular, I wonder if you could uh, take us to figure 3.6, uh, here, uh, which is this lovely illustration from the n- newspaper uh, Keijo Nippo*, published in Seoul, uh, in a Japanese-language newspaper. Uh, This is 1924. Uh, It's an illustration of two women who are almost mirror images of each other, and they're sort of smiling at the reader. And it seemed like, for me, this this illustration, I was really impressed by the way it encapsulated a lot of uh, what you're trying to get at in this chapter, uh, specifically about the relationship between these health products and nationalism and empire. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the advertisement beyond the sort of vague sketch I gave. Um, and then explain how it fits into what you're doing in this chapter.
0: Um, yeah, sure. Let me, let me get to the page. Um, so 3.6. And yeah, I thought this was a really evocative advertisement that I, I absolutely needed to, to finish the book, actually, right? Um, and it, it's uh, the... Let me see if I have it here. So it, it reads um, like you and I. So I'll just do a, a rough sort of translation if I could find the um, actual um, wording, you know, so you and I, we have the same hairstyle, the same features, you and I are alike, right? So there's these two women who look exactly the same, they're mirror images. We wear the same kimono, the same waistband, you and I are alike. We have the same illnesses, the same belly aches. you and I are alike. We have the same digestive organs, the same medicine, you and I are alike, right? So, um, I thought this was really interesting because it shows, um, first of all, you know, how is Hoshi selling its medicine abroad, right? Well, clearly it seems that it's selling it to, um, you know, the settler colonists, right, on the, on the one hand, right, um, because it's written in Japanese, the so Keijo nippo, right, um, Japanese language uh, newspaper. Um, so sort of promoting sort of ties to the Japanese mainland, for example, right? So, so maybe those who are living in, in, in Keijo, right, are, are, you know, not too different from, from those in Tokyo, right, or Osaka, or whatever have you, right? So some tied to the homeland, right? So consuming this, you know, whatever medicine it is, right? You get the same sort of medical care, right? In in Keijo and wherever else you want to be, right? And I also there's advertisements in like um, I think I included one from like San Francisco, etc. So so this whole diaspora, right? So it's advertising to a, a settler colonist or settler diaspora all across the world, right? Um, but also I, my sense is also that um, what Hoshi was trying to sell was a cultural self medication that was aspirational, and here um you know colonized elites I think were the target right those who were most likely to be the subalterns right those who um you know were able to um sort of ascend the ladder to have some sort of privilege and power right um beneath the colonial um you know sort of the upper level you know um, Japanese settlers et cetera right and you know, that, that very much ties into this idea of legitimating medicine, right, of like what the Japanese can provide, right, and um, in this sense, I, I, I sort of thought it would be, you know, something Pan-Asianist perhaps, maybe one is Korean, one woman is, or one is Japanese, right, um, you know, maybe they are both of the same gender, and maybe, and I'm not sure to what degree that would be the case, I don't want to like, you know, get too much into it, but maybe, right, it's, it's intentionally vague, and that's what, what advertising does, and I think the most powerful advertisements are intentionally vague, and have these meanings that you can imbue in them, right? And, and that's what this is about, I think, right? So, like, fundamentally, you're the same person, right? Fundamentally, you have the same uh, stomach problems, you have um, the same organs, and therefore you should be taking the same medicines, in a sense, right? Um, so Susan Burns, I believe, called this um, shared corporality in the marketing of medicines, and there's this excellent article of um, patent medicines in East Asia, and I forget exactly where it is, but um, easily searchable, and certainly it's cited in my book. Um, and this idea that, med- that, that patent medicines, um, or these types of, you know, medicines for consumers directly to consumers, were um, advertised in a way that emphasized cosmopolitanism, right? This sort of thing, right? So, so again, you. Um, can consume this medicine and you have access to it which you know you, you may not be in tokyo but you can have access to it right and you don't cure similar sort of things and um yeah it's um the sense of commonality that's promoting
1: yeah i like i like how you you point out that there's there's so much work that's actually being done by the viewer of the advertisement right that, and that that allows for a multiplicity of sort of flexible uh, interpretations. So the two women could both be Japanese. One could be Japanese. One could be Korean. We we don't really know explicitly, and so everybody is able to sort of see what they want to see in a sense. And that and that strikes me as a very it's a sort of interesting thing about empire more generally, right? I mean, it's it's kind of in some sense goes back to that idea um, that was put forth in the book Total Empire, right? You know, it's now almost 20, you know was twenty five years ago that. There's kind of, you know, everybody can find something they like, right? Everybody can find something to latch on to. And this particular sort of you know universality of uh, modern civilization, Japan being the bearer of that, has a valence here that's very, I think, powerful. And I like I like how you're able to bring that out uh, in through that advertisement. Yeah, I think um, that's
0: right. That's a great point.
1: Yeah. yeah, so I wanted to I wanted to move on though to to chapter four, which is the second chapter in part two here, um, and this is about medical infrastructures and medical missionaries. Um, so here you're looking at the functions and effects of the franchise distribution network that Hoshi sets up. Um, and the sort of business of self-medication and, and how that works within modern culture. Um, so I thought this was, this was really interesting because again, it re- it's a reminder that this really is a business history, right? So can you tell us about how the franchise distribution system worked um, and explain this really provocative, at least for me, uh, idea that you have that modern drug stores, which are the focus of this chapter, uh, were, as you put it, contact zones. Um, and sort of crucial interfaces for spreading the values and practices of modern medicine across society and into people's hearts and minds.
0: Great. Um, yeah. Um, I think, yeah. So franchises the way that Hoshi sort of envisioned this, um, was a way to provide some measure of control. And this is what sort of the the technology of franchising and and chain stores are similar. The only difference is that the chain store is owned by the parent company, whereas the franchise is is not um, for the individual franchises. Um, And for Hoshi, it it, uh, began as a simple contract between the company and and an individual um, wanted to sign the contract to basically sell um, Hoshi goods, right? Uh, Tokoyakuten, right, is the, is the, the Japanese term for it. So exclusive contract. So only through this person's store or whatever have you can these medicines be sold, right? And after signing this contract, the store becomes a franchise, right? This exclusive contract store. And it could then engage in other side businesses, etc. But it had to sell Hoshi goods. And if it were selling, um, and it could not sell goods that competed with Hoshi goods. That was the key thing, right? And the reason a store would sign up to be part of the Hoshi franchise um, was access to the Hoshi brand, um, because a lot of it, again, is this this idea of trust again, which I was trying to highlight in, in chapter three, right, is so crucial to, to selling, obviously, but it's very crucial for medicine when you could take something and you could die from it, right, essentially, right? So that's that's what, um, you know, how capitalism is important to the story of um, you know, medical authorities, why do regulations come into place? Well, it's because somebody, you know, some bad things happen, essentially. And um, medical authorities are worried about this uneven power dynamic between um, manufacturers and sellers versus the consumer, right? And in medicines, it comes to the fore completely compared to, I mean, not completely, but it's worse than um, other, um, you know, other goods right you buy a widget well you have a crappy widget if it doesn't really work right but you you have a a tainted medicine you could die right so that was the issue um so access to the brand access to the retailing network was very important for um those who wanted to buy into um, hoshi's franchise network and most importantly it was a spatial sort of um, configuration so hoshi would give an exclusive monopoly to a certain area to a certain seller and then they would have this sort of zone, right? They could only sell Hoshi goods, right? So you don't compete with other people as well, right? So um, that was the idea. And the whole point that, um, again, I said this before, that manufacturers like Hoshi use these sort of things, right? Shiseido, chain store, these are signs that we still see, I think, in Japan. I've been in Japan in like three years, thanks to COVID, Um, but still there, I'm sure, Um, right, this sort of thing. Um, It's the the whole reason that, that, stores are um, you know you see these sort of um, stores and, and why uh, you know merchants you know agree to become part of these networks is um, you know, they um, can earn a monopoly and then for the sorry for the company then um, it's to ensure that what they're selling at that um, at that endpoint. so what's so important for all companies is you have to sell the goods after you the consumer buys the goods. It doesn't matter one bit. Could, it could be you know like my book, right? I'm sure some people will buy it and it'll just be a doorstop, right? I guarantee you that, right? There's not going to open it. <laughs> um, just fine by me in a way. But anyway, besides the point, I only say that facetiously. Um, you don't know what happens if you know at that contact zone. this is hinting at the next question um, between the customer and the seller whether the merchant is going to be promoting you know that such and such goods. So that's, you know, what what drives the whole system, right, of production and, and such and such. And, um, so it's about ensuring loyalty for Hoshi, right, essentially, right? And um, all of this works as long as the franchisee follows directions. Um, often they did not, um, which I make clear. Um, and there are different, like, disciplinary mechanisms that Hoshi had. Um, one was the company newspaper, which was one of the primary um, sources for my book, right? So I have, like, you know, I copied all day, if I remember. Actually, multiple days. Just you know, these, these newspapers um, um, when I was uh, doing my research, um, and and a lot of it was about you know, um, you know techniques for better selling, right? How do you sort of um, position your showcase, right? What are some rudimentary sort of uh, medical terms, uh, medical knowledge that can be useful in sort of convincing people to buy certain meds of this sort. Um and other things were um you know Hoshi had a business school actually, which actually becomes the pharmacology school. Um so to train um franchise managers, right, and better techniques of selling, etc. Um, et cetera, et cetera. So often the franchise didn't uh franchisees, right? They would you know, it, what's to prevent them, right, if there isn't like the surveillance from, you know, say joining some other, you know, company's network, like like you know, Taisho pharmaceuticals Network, whatever have you, right? This sort of thing, and um, or other sort of wholesale networks, and that was a problem that Hoshi faced a lot, right? So, you know, I was, I was you know, thinking about like, why does this, you know, exist? This newspaper exists? and and in, you know, in the articles, why there was such emphasis on like, you know, punishments um, for those who violated the principles, right? But also, there was um a lot of uh, incentives as well for better selling as well, if if company or if um franchises remain loyal, right? So um, what I meant by the, the contact zone, I think, was that um, it, it's that, that crucial interface, right? Between buyer, the consumer, and the merchant, right? That was a contact zone, I think, right? Between um, the two. And you know, drug stores are constructed in a way to facilitate more efficient sales, to make sure that exchange actually happens, right? and in order to do that um the company right you know first of all it's there's different ideas so the um hoshi is trying to train managers in in different ideas of selling which are are global a lot of this was based off of Taylorist principles right so these are some circulating ideas as well um and i thought that you know through this interface between buyer and seller right they're also providing the the, the um you know, the retail clerk on the ground medical advice as well right so a lot of it is um you know you know that how um these you know principles of hygienic you know majority are sort of passed along right to the um consumer as well right so um and then and what i one of the points i make i think in this um chapter as well as in chapter three, because three and four are really tied together. And there is originally one chapter until I realized I had to break it apart and expand upon it. Um, It is the sense that, um, you know, there is an uneven power relationship fundamentally when seeking medical care between a doctor and a patient, right, Um, and the patient consumer, I should say. And one of the ways that people got around it back then, right, still get around it today, is simply to just buy the medicines directly, right? So, you know, by going to that medicine, you sort of, there's a, um, it, it, it hides, I guess, even though it's still there, that uneven power dynamic in many ways, right? Um, so Hoshi was trying to promote this sense of freedom through these drugstores. And, you know, um, one thing I should be doing is plugging the Bodies and Structures website that um, Kate McDonald and David Ambrose um, have created. And I was originally part of this. and I got a lot of the ideas for this chapter through, um, you know, working with them actually. Um, and, um, yeah, as for Hoshi, you know, the, the way in which it had this plan for a modern drugstore to sell more things was by looking at what are some of the drugstores in, you know, the Midwestern U S for example, and then like creating blueprints, etc., And sort of, um, trying to, you know, um, sort of find ways to, uh, create a more modern and inviting space that people would, you know, suddenly, you know, want to go to the drugstores for different reasons, right? Drugstores were not just places to sell medicines; You could buy other things, right? You could, you know, get, um, you know, ice cream, um, you could get medical advice, right? All sorts of things, right? And, and in a way, you know, a lot of the drugstores today are similar in that sense. So I thought this was a nice sort of space um, to sort of analyze, to show some of the different ideas I've been working with throughout the book.
1: Yeah. And in, in the book, you, you refer to the, the ideal Hoshi drugstore as a temple of consumerism, but also as an alternative to medical clinics. And I think you're sort of talking about the uh, question of, you know, that that, that power dynamic, but the uh, specifically taking that out of a, a professional doctor-patient relationship and into a, um, a capitalist relationship in which there's a at least a sense of self-determination, right? That's this culture of self-medication that you're talking about. Um, so I think this is, so, so, so that's the interface if I understand it. Uh, that's yeah. right, yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. Exactly, that's something we talked about before, right? We have the, the Invermectin people, right, today, and like, uh, um, but I mean, it's always sort of been there, right? Um, so, so one of the, the reasons also, I didn't mention this earlier, but um, why this was so fascinating to me is that my parents both were research scientists, grew up in, in New York, um, and that's where big pharma has been centered in the U.S., um, research scientists for big drug firms, right? So fundamentally, I had this sort of unconscious sort of interest in this, right? And, and often my parents would, would say, like, why, why even bother going to a doctor, right? Because we know what they're going to give you anyway. We'll just give it to you anyway, right? Because they would have access to it through different friends, actually. And yeah, probably quite illegal, but still, um, yeah, that's what they did. And, and they're all, you know, they're, they're classic sort of immigrant first-generation parents, right? They're, they want to save money. Why waste the time? Why waste the money to go to a doctor, and especially when the doctor doesn't really know, right? And just get on with it, right? Um, so I think fundamentally, subconsciously, certainly in, in this chapter, I see where, you know, how I sort of grew up, right? In that sort of way.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. I I... I... <laughs> I can see that now that you mention it, but it, it, it's, a, it's sort of an interesting insight into into the chapter. Um, one thing I wanted to, before we move on, I wanted to get to this question of discipline that you brought up early on in your answer there, right? Because you say, uh, and I want to quote you here, disobedient retailers undoubtedly damaged Hoshi's efforts to spread its culture of self-medication. And I guess my question is, you know, you've described the sort of uh, I guess you would call it a symbiotic sort of relationship between Hoshi and its franchisees. What, what's, what, why were these retailers, uh, these franchise uh, franchises disobedient and how, and then what did Hoshi do, right? Um and what were those disciplinary measures that they took?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a great question. And so, so first of all, they just, um, yeah, I guess I, I hinted at this before, like why, what is to prevent a exclusive contract for also selling other sorts of medicines, right? Um, to to like double dip in other sorts of, you know, in another, um, you know, wholesale system, right? That sort of thing. Um, and, and how Hoshi um, disciplined them, would there be fines, right? And these would be broadcast in the company newspaper, right? Actually, so you would see like the, you know, this, you know, retailer was punished for this reason, right? And like every issue had this. And then others also have like the, superlative for the franchises who were doing everything possible you know following orders as well Uh, they'd also be kicked out actually if um they were were really um not doing what was um the company wanted right the disobedience could be um in in more um i mean in in less um overt ways so simply just being um right that appearance would not be great um simply from you know, the way they approached customers, right? So a lot of the newspapers were about training um, these retailers about, you know, how to approach a customer, et cetera. Um, maybe they seemed untrustworthy. So a lot of it was just tied to the way in which Hoshi recruited, you know, those to be franchised. And I talk about that a bit, right? They want like the, like the, the most elite people in a given town to be sort of Hoshi franchises, et cetera. Um,
1: yeah. yeah, I thought this, again, it gets back to your question, as you said, sort of of trust, right? And the so on the one hand, that sort of appearance of professionalism and a certain sort of Hoshi brand, but also the exclusivity that goes with that. So we, you know, we previously been talking about the question of sort of the universality of uh, medic- medication itself, but as a brand, you can't really be universal because then you're generic, right? And so I thought this was a sort of interesting uh, tension interplay uh, that comes out in this question of discipline. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. Um, you now Hoshi is selling certainly among among patent medicines, right? It's a misnomer, right? They're not really patented, right? Like it's a um, but they're trademark. That's important, actually, right? And, and trademarking, right, is the brand actually that matters, not so much the substance. So that's what was the key thing. And then people buy on brands, right? That's the thing, right? So you know, when you drive across country, for example, you know, you probably would tend to stop at a franchise rather than going to some, you know, McDonald's rather than than something else. Most likely, I'm not sure, but um, certainly among my family.
1: Well, you know, I, yeah, I actually, I wrote an article about uh, food and trust, and that's actually one of the points that I was making there. And so I, I think that's absolutely right, that the brand is tremendously important in creating trust. And that then tension is is something that I thought you brought out really nicely in this chapter, um, which concludes uh, uh, part two. And then we make this really interesting shift from digestive medicines and Bayaku, these patent medicines, to Opium. Uh, which, as you said early on uh, in, the, in the interview, uh, had something to do with the sort of context of what that you were uh, thinking about while writing this. Um, and so part three is the opium empire. And you take up Hoshi's role in uh, both the licit and illicit Japanese trade in opium uh, in the early 20th century. Um, and you talk, as you said, about how this opium scandal almost ruined the, the company. And so I want to get into this in chapters five and six. So chapter five is the scandal of opium opium and the colonial exception. Um, and then chapter six is things fall apart. And I did get the literary reference. Um, so anyway, chapter five, um, as the title suggests, is about two things, right? So on the one hand, you have the opium scandal, um, and the differential understanding of addictive substances in the metropole and colonies on the other. So opium is, as you point out, um, a particularly suggestive, inviting object of study, because it rebels against this drug medicine, good, bad kind of binary conception of things. And you've already, you know, uh, spoken to this a little bit. Um, Hoji scandal then takes place within a particular context also of Japanese empire and the global anti-narcotics movement in the early 20th century, uh, which also is, you know, tied up with things like the League of Nations. And it's a big part of, you know, this, what the international community is doing and uh, how Japan is trying to sort of find its place in the world post-World War I. Uh, And you describe the scandal as inarguably the defining moment in the history of Hoshi. So what was it? Why is it so formative? What can it tell us about these tensions which we've been discussing uh, about the modern medicine, modern empire? And just on a personal level, I'm really interested in hearing uh, about the How seeing the scandal and the politics of opium within the empire reveals, as you put it, the hypocrisy of the Japanese biomedical regime's civilizing mission. Um, And this is something I think some other authors have have written about opium have have touched on, right? This idea that opium addicts were both slaves to the drug and therefore, by definition, not Japanese, in as much as being Japanese, sort of Japanese-ness itself is defined by being self-disciplined, by being rational. Um, so yeah, if you could touch on, on that as well um, in your answer, that'd be great.
0: Yeah, sounds great. Um, yeah, th- I was writing this amid a lot of scholarship you just um, touch upon, right? So it's so Miriam Kingsburg's work, right? Moral Nation, um, Stefan Rimner's work, Opium, I forget the other part, um, but um, John Jennings' earlier work on opium trafficking. Um, so a, a very rich scholarship that sort of talks about Um, Japan and its place um, within um, the anti-narcotics movement, right? Along with its place as um, one of the primary producers of opium-based narcotics, right? And this sort of disconnect, right? Um, And the way Hoshi is involved in this is that, um, you know, one of the ways that, uh, you know, the company came into being was Hoshi's personal connections to um, different, Political bureaucratic figures um, around Koto Shinpei, for example, and people like Sugiyama Shigemaru, Koto Shinpei himself, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so, the, this tie to um, the government general in Taiwan was very strong right, from the very beginning. And Hoshi, as it developed, it began as a patent medicine producer, but um, one of its other primary um, me- group of medicines that it um, Produced were um, opium-based narcotics, and this began um, with an exclusive contract to purchase crude morphine from Taiwan's opium um, monopoly, right of the government general. And this was, I think, 1915, if I remember correctly. Um, and then this monopoly ends by 1917, um, and this provided crucial revenue because for um, for, for for Hoshi, obviously. Um if me, but also for um the government general as well and and it's the idea that um the Japanese state treated colonies as states of exception. And I say that as the term that I use and I'm hinting on different things with that the colonial exception right in the sense that um if you're Japanese, you cannot touch opium anything sort of like that right and this is what, you know, Stefan Rimner and, and Miriam talk about at length, right? Um, but if you are Taiwanese, right, and you are registered as an opium addict, you can still purchase opium just through a government monopoly, right? And originally this was a policy that, um, you know, actually through through of <laughs> Goto Shinpei's work, um, that provided a way to wean addicts. From Obion, which he said was humanitarian, civilizing, etc. You don't want to, you know, have them um, go cold turkey. That wasn't the term they used, but certainly to have them just like stop, right? Because then you know, there'd be, um, you know, a, a whole sort of side effects with that, right? Which would create social unease. And all of this was, you know, in the context of Japan taking over Taiwan after the Treaty of Shimonoseki, right after the Sino-Japanese War. The efforts to differentiate Japanese rule. In Taiwan, etc., from China, etc., a certain legitimacy, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, this sort of thing, um, and this policy of you know, exclusively providing opium um, to addicts, registered addicts. You don't they don't allow, or they not allow um, new people to register, right? So if you're registered, then you know that was it. You can't like sort of get access to it uh, to opium weren't registered. So it was just, you know, as people died, you know, as people, you know, grew older, et cetera, or got sick, then the numbers would naturally decrease. And they it, it, it did, right? Um, the problem was that the Japanese government was also crucially um, relying upon revenue from this monopoly as well. So in a way, it's sort of a monopoly of, of uh, drug dealing in a way, if I look at it from the most critical perspective, right? And, um, there's a, a great article which I um, cite here, Hung Bing um, Bingzu, um Xu in in China, Chinese, um, who's written about um, I guess the different tastes of opium, right in Taiwan produced by the government general, um, different grades that are produced for recreational. It seemed to be almost recreation. Yeah, yeah. It it seemed to be as as a you know it, it's not really for for medical purposes, but they're providing different grades of opium, like the really good stuff, right, for those who've had the money to purchase it and also like the really crap, you know, stuff that's like cut with, with junk, you know, for for those who did not have as much money, right? And they're, you know, why do that? It sort of makes this whole regime look like it's actually trying to sell more opium, right? It's like something's going on here, this recreational consumption, which seems to be, emphasize right and all of this was going on um, at the same time that Japan is involved in a bunch of anti-narcotics um, legislations conventions um, with other countries right so um, I, I used documents from um, the British Foreign Office to sort of talk about Hoshi here and like who she's seen as being like the face of uh, or legitimating face of this sort of dark, opium monopoly, right? And what was going on that they were pointing to was um, in these conventions, they had to, you know, different countries had to list, um, you know, how many opium cases are being shipped and moved, et cetera, and regulate those. And then they did the the math and then, like, things are being leaked out in some sort of way, right? And there's also this um, growing, uh, you know, morphine problem, also opium problem, obviously, in the Chinese mainland, et cetera. Obviously the British are, are not uh, objective onlookers, right? I mean, <laughs> clearly that's you know the, the the backstory to this is the opium war, and then you know, um opium manufacturers like Jardine Matheson, etc., obviously influencing the British Foreign Office, Obviously. Um but Hoshi is uh, the, the um seen as being the face, the legitimate face of this trade in many ways, right, due to its exclusive contract that it um, and this was a contract that, like, even domestic um, critics were looking at and sort of saying, you know, why is why is there only one country or one company producing this stuff, right? And in 1917, I believe, other companies um, also become involved, but still, it's highly tightly regulated to like only four companies. The others, I think, were Takada, I think, uh, and um, Dai I can't remember exactly, but other major major firms. And um, So that was the hypocrisy, right, of of this, that Hoshi was tied to, right? And and Hoshi, of course, like what was its um, mantra, right? Kindness first. We haven't really talked about that, right? Sort of, and that's the humanitarian sort of idea. You know, companies that care. I think that's like Pfizer's sort of uh, um, motto or something like that. Um, But a similar sort of thing that Hoshi had, kindness first, right? And, um, you know, Hoshi um, was involved also in, um, procuring raw opium um, from places like Turkey, right, for the Japanese or for the uh, for the the uh, Taiwan, the, the Japanese um, colonial regime in, in Taiwan as well. Um, so clearly, there's you know this you know, symbiotically beneficial relationship that Hoshi has with um, the government general in Taiwan. And you know, when this scandal broke. Um, you know, Hoshi suddenly, right, is seen as being this company that, you know, wait a minute, why, why did Hoshi um, become so, um, so big, right, so suddenly, right? A lot of it was tied to its relationships, right, to um, certain politicians. All of this seemed very unseemly. Um, also, it's also, you know, it's not just trading life-saving medicines. It's selling um, illegal, you know, um, illicit medicines. And, you know, the the actual scandal breaks out in 1925. Hoshi's charged with illegally selling, transporting Turkish opium um, through different warehouses, you know, from, I think, Yokohama, then to, or attended for a lot of that stock, but then had to, like, go to Geelong in Taiwan. And then as it did this, it violated various, you know, opium sort of um, transport regulations. And all this was a big shock. Um, It also was, you know, the, the sense that Hoshi Hoshi was um, caught selling um, through um, its um, through um, other dealers um, opium to um, people who had been you know known opium traders actually I mean known like illicit opium traders I should say right so all of this comes out you know Hoshi like we didn't do anything wrong but um, you know we're just following orders here. Right, um, and you know that, that's what you get in terms of this hypocrisy I should you know answer first is is that sense that you know Hoshi vis-a-vis the Japanese government general claimed to be um, f- providing producing um, life-saving medicines, and this is actually what's going on here, right It actually is uh, they through Hoshi, this sheds light on how the Japanese government was involved in. Um, elicit opium traffic, according to um, different critics.
1: Yeah, and I mean, so this actually gets us to chapter six, the other part of this uh, uh, you know, section of the book, right? Because as you show in, in chapter five, uh, the opium scandal is devastating for Hoshi's Sort of public image, right? But also, it's devastating for company finances. Um, So you show that it, you know, in terms of finances, it shows um, Hoshi was actually pretty heavily leveraged and on shaky financial ground, dependent on gobbling up new investment just to stay afloat. And you know, I, I, I was reminded of the fact that Charles Ponzi himself was also active in the twenties, right? This seemed like a a particularly timely kind of scandal, Um, and so in this. Chapter Chapter Six, you look into the aftermath of that scandal, right? The labor strike, the bankruptcy, the multiple lawsuits, the tax bribery, arrest for the company president, bankruptcy, etc. And then the amazing fact that Hoshi bounces back. Um, and then goes on, as you'll talk about later, to do some colonial war profiteering. Um, but let, let's get to the bottom of things, right, in the sense of, like, the absolute nadir for the company. Um, what, what happens in the aftermath of the opium scandal?
0: Right. Um, well, essentially, once the scandal breaks, the, the finances are frozen, right? And Hoshi then loses liquidity. That was the key thing. Um, and as, as you said, you know, the, you know, Hoshi was a highly leveraged company. Right? And I've discussed this, I believe, in uh, Chapter 2, I believe. Um, the financing was a little questionable. I think Ponzi is a, is a good corollary to this. right? It's diff- the same time period, actually, right? when, when Hoshi is um, building up um, its capital. And because it's so highly leveraged, um, when you lose liquidity, right, that's a, a big deal. And suddenly it can't um, pay its creditors. Right So the big trigger for Hoshi's bankruptcy is the fact that it has to default on, I think the third major um, bond offering, um, but also related to that was the fact that Hoshi then had trouble paying wages, right simply meeting the day-to-day demands of producing medicines, right and this then leads to a major strike. These are tied together actually. Um, so you know, the you know Hoshi has a major strike at its major factory in Tokyo. Um, because of the fact that it can't pay wages on time, right, and then it lays off people and locks out, you know, workers, and this whole um, thing occurs. But they're egged on by the creditors, right? The the strikers are obviously as well as obviously labor, right, across um, Japan. So, um, you know, the creditors want, um, you know, some part of Hoshi, right, and. Um, the hoshi stock price um, Hoshi has to delist in May 1926 it, the original stock price was 50 yen 3.6 was the value in, in 1926 I believe um, so all of this is you know if you're if you have a stake in Hoshi in some sort of way either you are owed money to them by purchasing the bonds or you own hoshi stock you know you're not very happy right um, Backstory to this as well, um, which is more complicated to talk about, is that a lot of the people who are buying the Hoshi stock and the bonds are also part of the franchise sort of network. So um, the, the, the small shop owner type people. So again, Ponzi's thing sort of is, is important here. Um, so the creditors and the stockholders, um, they fight for bankruptcy. And Hoshi ultimately has to declare bankruptcy and they feel that Hoshi can't repay its debts. You know, Hoshi is like. You, know, you see in the in news company newspapers in like 19 27, 28 like every you know, issue has like 10 articles saying this is what we're gonna do to, to rescue our company and blah 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 and do all those sorts of things and um, people aren't happy obviously they're like there's like there's no way you're gonna recover from this right um, And this leads to trouble. Um, some of the creditors um, feel like the best way to do it is uh, to, to recover their money. Um, would be to break up Hoshi, right? What's valuable about Hoshi? Well, the physical plant, um, but also importantly, the intellectual property, the trademarks again, because what was valuable was his brand of the Hoshi digestive medicine. So one of the uh, major creditors um, finds a way to um, get the assent of one of the Hoshi executives to sign off while Hoshi Hajime is dealing with his um, legal troubles. That's um, one of the executives to sign off on transferring the um, trademark rights of the Hoshi Digestive Medicine and other important medicines to this other um, group of creditors. Who then they begin to produce you know, another copycat Hoshi Digestive Medicine. I think I have a, a, an image in the book of you know this lawsuit and like how there is this like copycat sort of Digestive Medicine. There's a bunch of them actually that appear actually. Um, and that's what's, what's valuable again it speaks again to what we discussed in, in chapters three and four of uh, it's the brand that matters really right the trust that hoshi had um with the public with you know the fact that that medicine was seen as being reliable and like symbolized the company and this sort of thing so um yeah a lot of troubles there hoshi himself hajime himself um, implicated in tax bribery uh, spends, I think, two months in, like, Sugamo or something like I can't remember exactly, ich- Ichigaya prison in Sugamo, I think. Um, it might be incorrect. Um, so that that's the nature right there. Um, and then when he gets out, he's like, oh, my God, what did you guys do? And it's like he realizes, actually, that you know, <laughs> um, there might be something that's duplicitous among the Hoshi executives, also trying to, you know, you know save their own skin and, and um, you know, um, save their own fortunes, that sort of thing. Um, so Hoshi has counter lawsuits um, against the creditors, those who tried to um, take the intellectual property, et cetera, et cetera. And how um, Hoshi's ultimately saved um, two ways. One was the, um, the fact that the 1930s, things change um, geopolitically. Um, you know, what is the big event in 1931, right? Well, Manchurian incident, right? Then followed by League of Nations uh, withdrawal, right? Soon after, um, and you know, ideas of autarky, right? In the wake of global depressions, etc. Right? Um, so suddenly, medical self-sufficiency becomes important again, like it had been in, in World War One. I. Um, I didn't really talk about that if I remember um, earlier, so I apologize. But yeah, the ideas of when, you know, why does the, the pharmaceutical company, pharmaceutical industry, you know, boom suddenly in World War One? Right? Well, because you know, medical self-sufficiency was a thing, right? Um, when a lot of the medicines were coming from Germany, um, Europe, etc. Um, so just as in other industries, that's the boom period for the pharmaceutical industry, which was a strategic sort of industry, right? Um, which I argue, right? Similar to shipbuilding and steel is what I say. Um, might be overstated, but I think that, you know, I'm making a point here of the importance of, of having healthy bodies here. Um, so that, a similar sort of sense of, you know, the importance of, procuring enough viable medicines to maintain a healthy population um, become increasingly important when Japan decides to go at it alone, right? And these are, that's the entire world essentially decides to go at it alone at that moment in the 1930s. So um, there are plans then to revive um, Hoshi's um, Sincona plantations, um, which Hoshi had started on um, since the late 1910s. Um, to varying degrees of success in the 1920s, Cochet also invested in places like Peru, also for similar sort of um, things of, you know, access to cocaine and other medicinal plants, but also quinine, etc. Um, so the government, um, you know, Ministry of Health steps in and says, "Well, maybe we need your help here, right?" Um, and that's you know, subject of chapter seven. But the other thing which I discussed in chapter eight was. Um, you know, Hoshi continued to have these ties to um, important politicians and some of the most important ones, um, politicians and also you know important figureheads, people like Toyama Mitsuru, right, which which Ikemoto talks about a lot, Ikemoto Sinauer in, in her book. Um, these sort of um, in-between people who like sort of bridge the uh, world of um, formal, you know, illicit politics and the underworld, right. And it's sort of a theme, right. We see, you know, Wakeman does this in China as well. One of his favorite, you know, is his book about Shanghai, um, but a similar sort of thing, right? And um, you know, these are big figures um, who become sort of these paragons of um, nationalism, um, et cetera, and they step in and sort of help broker um, a very generous settlement, bankruptcy settlement, um, between Hoshian's creditors to allow the company to maintain operations.
1: Yeah, and so this revived, uh, resurrected uh, uh, Hoshi then uh, goes on to actually do quite well for itself during the war, and this is uh, something that you've begun to address, right, in your in your last answer. Uh, but it's the thing that you get to in part four: uh, science, self sufficiency, and wartime mobilization. Right. So um, I'm going to sort of squeeze these two chapters together, chapter seven and eight. So chapter seven is selling the science of quinine self-sufficiency and eight is war and drugs. Um, So together you're talking about the revival of fortunes by playing on national security concerns and specifically self-sufficiency, as you said. Um, So the critical malaria treatment quinine is at the center of this. And this is where we get to the, those, uh, Sincona plantations, or is it, is it kinchona or I oh, Sincona. Sincona? I say Sincona, but
0: yeah. I think it. there's,
1: I, I looked, actually looked this up and it looks like there's like, the dictionary is like, I don't know, there's like four oh. ways to say that, but oh. you know, Sincona. <laughs> I I like one, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So these Sincona uh, plantations are developed in the empire, um, to capitalize essentially on fears about medical self-sufficiency. Um, and, you know, and in some ways, this is re, uh, rehashing the success story of World War I. Um, and I have two sets of questions about this, right? So, first, in chapter eight, um, you talk about how quinine self sufficiency became a tautology. And I'd love if you could sort of flesh out uh, what you mean by that. Um, and the second question is you write that Hoshi's cultivation of cinchona of, uh, and its Production of quinine, quote, reinscribed existing inequalities within Japanese colonial discourse and policy. So, how so, um, and what did that say about the company and the systems in which it was embedded?
0: Okay, great. Yeah. Um, so, 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 quinine self sufficiency as a tautology. Um, what I meant by that was that um, you know, quinine becomes um, very important um, in uh, ensuring that Japanese soldiers, as they invade Southeast Asia, um, China, etc. cetera, um, can be somewhat protected, quantum prophylaxis, right, this sort of thing. Um, and there's, uh, you know, I got a lot of the sources from uh, the National Diet Library, the, the, uh, the political science materials room, right, um, fourth floor, and there's a whole thing of, uh, I forget the actual name, Okamoto, is it, uh, I forget the, the last name, Something Okamoto um, collection. There's like this whole um, trove of documents related to um, Japanese uh, Ministry of Health, um, sort of trying to sort of talk about the importance of uh, medical self sufficiency of things like quinine and um, other sorts of things. Okamoto Mitsuru. I'm looking over there at, at sort of like what uh, my, the the, uh, the folders of like copy documents that have. Um, it's been yeah, so um, tautology in the sense that um, this is mostly after forty one, right, after Pearl Harbor, like they day after Pearl Harbor, right, that's when Japan becomes its um, invasion of, of Southeast Asia, right. Um, Japan needed uh, more and more quinine for its war effort, yet it seemed to be that the only way to get the medicine that it needed was to actually invade the um, places where they produce quinine really well, which was largely speaking, right, Java, which was like 90% um, in the early 20th century of the world's quinine supply came from um, Java, right. Um, So that's what I sort of meant by that was like, you really have to sort of, um, it's tied to military invasion in order to get that stuff. And the reason is that um, the plantations that Hoshi was involved in, um, also um, Shionogi as well, and Takeda. So I guess this speaks then also to a reason why I felt that this would be a good Case study, right? For the entire, if we're talking about medicine and capitalism, is that you know there a lot of other companies they produce similar things, right? Um, Had similar ties to the government, right? And it's an anchor. And yes, you could say it's a case study, like you know. But I'd I'd say that if you read it uh, um, as being an example of of what other companies are doing, it's a pretty good um, sort of example to to discuss how many major pharmaceutical companies. Um, active in the early 20th century. Um, but anyway, so um, the, the quinine-producing um, cinchona plantations were um, not yet producing viable yields of um, cinchona bark, right, from which quinine is derived, um, until you know really you know the end of the war. If even then, um, there's a post-colonial story to this of like actually there's a confiscation of these. Um, different plantations, which become you know sort of the building blocks to the um, post-colonial, post-war Taiwanese drug industry. But anyway, um, the the uh, the plantations, um, right? We're not producing enough, and that then relates to the second question. I think of reinscribing inequalities was that um, the plantations were for producing cinchona to derive quinine that was not for anyone but Japanese people. And that's because Panem was expensive. Uh, Michael Siong-Leo, who's you know, one of the, um, you know, really uh, uh, his book and especially um, his advice really helped this project along,
1: um,
0: especially at this point with this, this is how I began the um, the actual project was, um, this was an EASTS article with Hinomi Mizuno actually, um, and, and this sort of special issue but anyway. Um, this uh, requinine itself was um, too expensive, right? To, you know, the, the government general felt that it didn't make financial sense um, to have it as a, have quinine be a prophylactic treatment, right, um, for other sorts of people. And you know, they felt that aborigines especially, right, that's just, you know, they just live with it. That's what they felt. This is what it is. right? There's, it made them naturally lethargic and weak and sick. This is what they are, right? So that, again, ties into the civilizing sort of ideology. Right? Um, Taiwanese as well. Um, most part, right, Kana is not necessarily for them, uh, mostly for the settlers, but then there's an aspirational sort of thing of access to the medicine. Um, but the most important people, the labor power that the firms like Hoshi and Shinogi and Takeda used um, were the aboriginal people in these, Um, you know, places that were in the mountains, right? Paul Barkley's work, I I rely on heavily um, here um, for talking about how um, the Aboriginal people were, um, you know, outside of the um, ability to become actual citizens, right? And these were the laborers and run by an Aboriginal affairs office, how they managed them. And Hoshi's whole idea was, you know, we're going to go into the mountains, right? The mountains sort of, so one of the, the programs that you know was emphasized for for like Hoshi legitimating this project um, was that this would be a project that would help develop um, um, agriculture in the mountains, right? Industrial agriculture, like to sort of like improve yields, right? So it's all about you know um, supplying enough you know food and, and other sorts of things. Um, and it's the labor that you know Hoshi relied upon because, generally speaking, they're you know they were um, not paid in, in anywhere close to the amount that even Taiwanese would have been paid for the Japanese. So so clearly they were like technicians who were paid right who were Japanese mostly but also Taiwanese. Um, but the actual labor power and you know how do you cultivate? Sincona, right? It's still by hand in many ways, right? Um, and, and it's just really labor intensive. Um, so his whole thing was, you I know, mean, that's how you keep costs down, actually, is, is, is have this, right? But the um, Sincona, right, cultivated by the Aboriginals were not for them. I mean, that's what I mean by that, by reinscribing sort of these hierarchies, right? Um, they lived on state controlled land. You know, Hoshi was able to get a lease on this land very cheaply through its government connections, right, for these plantations. Um, yeah, that's what's going on here. So the medicines themselves so, you know, the access to the medicines was such a key thing for Hoshi's argument for civilizing people. Well, these people didn't have access to it. They didn't buy it, right? And what does that then say about you know who Hoshi felt um or companies like Hoshi felt were legitimate, you know, people who could be civilized? Well really only if you have the money for it right? to, to buy these things that, that's the only people that Hoshi really cared about I think is my sense um, fundamentally
1: yeah and I guess this gets again to that you know sort of tension between uh, the, the capitalist business world and you know government agendas uh, and the you know, I guess the, the dynamic between uh, providing medication on the one hand and withholding medication on the other, both as part of the same dialectic of civilization, right? It seems to me it's sort of to be, you know, the, the one hand giveth and the other taketh away kind of thing, um, which, again, when you think about these inequalities that you're uh, pointing out and how they're inscribed and reinscribed through these policies of of and about the body uh, makes a lot of sense, right? Um, and this brings me to my to the, to the last thing I wanted to talk about, which is that, of course. There is a domestic market as well for the medications that Japan far- Japanese pharma companies, Hoshi included, are producing for the war effort. Um, and I'd love it if we could go in Chapter 8 to Figure 8-2. Um, and this is another of these fantastic newspaper ads that you dug up. Um, this one, I think, to me, demonstrates the changing rhetoric of medicine as Japan is gearing up for total mobilization, total war. Um, I want to wrap up with Figure 8-2. For a couple of reasons, right? So first, uh, on the one hand, uh, as you point out, the advertisement is is a marked break from the discourses of the 20s. And on the other, it it seems to me to be part of some underlying continuities of national medicine um, in modern Japan, represented by Hoshi. Um, And then second... um, this, this uh, advertisement is, to me, uh, I think an ex- a really outstanding example of a central point that you're making uh, about national medicine, right? Namely that the state industry cooperation uh, is really important in creating a modern statist biomedical regime ultimately intimately tied to a capitalist consumer market. So I guess if you could again sort of read for us the ad copy tell us a little bit about this advertisement and its significance I think that'd be a great place to wrap up.
0: Yeah um, sounds good. So figure 8.2 um, it, it's an image of um, Toyama Mitsuru right and it's like what he says it's like Toyama Mitsuru Sensei waku, right? which is like Confucian to me it's like but, you know it's like it's sort of Confucius says yeah this sort of thing. Like, I just remember this from uh, classical Chinese classes. Anyway, besides the point, um, but it's sort of similar, I guess, symbolism of like the, the place in which this guy had for uh, nationalism, imperialism at this moment in time, right? That in the Tokyo Asahi Shinbun, you know, Hoshi Pharmaceuticals is basing its whole ad copy on him. In a way, right? It's markedly different um, from earlier advertisements which promoted cosmopolitanism with Western countries, right? other sorts of things. But now it's about the nation. And um, it reads, um, Hoshi is a company based on the principles of the nation. And the medicines it makes are also based on the principles of the nation. Whether or not something is good or evil in the world is determined according to the principles of the nation. And in the same way, whether a medicine is good or bad is determined according to the principles of the nation. Right. So it's like, huh, interesting here, right? It's the... Um, what is it actually selling here right in 1935 here it's promoting nationalism right and it seems almost as if it's the medicines incidental in a way um, and I think I talk about this in this chapter of you know there is still a lot of value of advertising and medicines can to be advertised actually in newspapers through um, the time period when actually um, there is this state control right of all the, the entire pharmaceutical industry It was a value of sort of positioning the company um, within um, this structure of proclaiming that we're doing this for the nation, right? for whatever have you. So so value um, is demonstrating the value that Hoshi has to the state, which, you know, if it wins the war, then um, that value can be easily transferable to uh, monetary value, obviously. So that's what I was sort of saying. and, and in this chapter, I talk about how, you know, the the, the very same ad men are involved, actually. I, I talk about, like, Shiseido and Morinaga, and, um, you know, there's this book by um, Baba Makoto, I think that's the name, um, um, about advertising and war, which I sort of play on to talk about um, advertising. And, you, know, it's, you know, Jennifer Weisenfeld has made this argument um, that... Uh, advertising. um, It's the the very same people who were um, making the, you know, the creating the modern girl, really, right? These were the people responsible for it. They were also involved in creating um, ad copy and propaganda, outright propaganda. I think Brock Kushner also talks about this um, for uh, the Japanese military as well, right? So, um, similar techniques, right, for sort of um, spreading an ideology of nationalism, et cetera, right? And, um, and this is like the slippage um, in, in in the message of Hoshi as well, and I, I also illustrate this, I think, through the adjusted medicine of suddenly the way in which the adjusted medicine itself is advertised is, is not advertised as something that is cosmopolitan anymore, but something that's for the unique Japanese intestine, right, that sort of thing. Um, for being you know only Japanese people you know take this and for for people who um, eat rice right rather than other sorts of things um so um yeah that, that is sort of what's what's going on here I think it's um you know through the marketplace are the values of the state in many ways right and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't right obviously the state did not want to be connected to Hoshi when it was going through its scandal but it came out certainly and goto shinpei got a lot of that um but here you know um using hoshi actually and and it's a symbiotic sort of relationship here and you see this through toyama mitsuru right so these figures who were you know like i guess marius jansen right Sen in the japanese like classic book right talks about you know um him as well like these were these were these like crazy right wing radicals right who are really like mob bosses E. Komariko talks about that as well. Um, and they, they suddenly are legitimate again. It's, it's so crazy to me um, how they, they sort of retain their relevance, right? But then it sort of is, is, a, is symptomatic of the changing times, right? And this is, you know, you know, one year removed, this ad from, you know, 226, right? Um, so, um, yeah, that's what's going on here, actually. And, you know, the marketplace is this vector, um, important vector for the spread of medicinal values. I think that's really the, the central focus point of the book. Um, of how um, drug companies are intermediaries for this, right? And and I thought it'd be a good book to to write about through Hoshi to um, talk about this angle, which hasn't really been discussed yet. And I was like, huh, you know, why hasn't you know that been the case in many ways? And and it's not a new story in many ways. If you were to go and, and like I you know read you know Hoshi Shinichi stuff, and there's a bunch of Hoshi biographies and like framework is there right and, and generally my work follows that framework but I try to use it in a certain ways to, to talk about um, really you know capitalism and medicine rather than like sort of um, um, use it as a hagiography of Hoshi which is how it's used in you know, other sorts of, of ways so um, and I thought that uh, the book itself right it's you know, drug companies what are they today um, they emphasize science rationality laboratory especially right laboratory research. And I, I don't talk about the laboratory at all here, actually in the book, right? I don't talk about vaccines. Um, and what, what I wanted to emphasize was that this Hoshi story is similar to how other firms developed in Japan, but also similar to um, you know, how pharmaceutical industry developed more globally in the sense that, um, you know, before the, the you know, research and development becomes so dominant in the post-war, a lot of the raw materials for the medicines, um, right, relied on you know um, herbs and plants and you know um, you know whatever have you um, you know um, hormones, animal hormones, etc. What are things in the natural world, right? So then, drug companies are tied to those structures that control those um, you know natural resources, etc. as well, and that's where you got the colonial angle. And other sorts of things
1: yeah thank you uh, and th- that's a i think a nice way to sort of you know wrap up uh in, with the the sort of uh return to the the original um major significance of, of the case study um but i also wanted to uh before we let you go uh ask about what it is that you're up to now now that the book is out um uh, and uh you must be thinking about a, a, a next project so what is that um,
0: sure yeah um it's actually just in USC, actually, and Ben Uchiyama graciously invited me to um, this workshop on Japan in the long 1940s, and wanting to look at uh, the long 1940s as opposed to um, just you know this um, uh, uh, change, obviously from war to wartime, or or, or wartime to to post-war, etc. And you know what I was thinking of was um, you know I'm interested more and more in, in um, agricultural history. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that I'm at UGA and there's a lot of historians working on agricultural history here and we have a workshop that um, I've been involved in um, and I was thinking of doing something on land reform actually and you know, um, you know, Ronald Doerr published this amazing work that I don't think anybody can ever match again. And I like, was rereading it and I'm like, oh my god, this is like phenomenal in terms of its empirical heft and the amount of work that he put into it. Um but um you know that, that was nineteen fifty nine and I think maybe a way to look at um, some of the major issues concerning the transition from wartime to post war um would be to look at one of the you know the, the most celebrated reform of them all of the Allied occupation um look at it more globally, look at it um, you know in a way that um, emphasizes actually um the wartime period, which actually um doesn't talk about as much. Um, we can't because there's this book is so rich. It's actually just like, you know, it's just amazing firsthand anthropological research in many ways. Uh, so, um, you know, the wartime roots of land reform or something like that, which emphasizes, you know, how a lot of the ideas for land reform, um, and this is the, what I presented at USC um, just really a few days ago. Um, a lot of the ideas that the U.S. Um, brought to land reform or our Influenced by Japanese um, agrarian scientists working in the nineteen twenties, thirties, and forties, um, and you know, right now it's at an exploratory sort of stage. Um, it's the time of COVID, so I thought, you know, this maybe it's starting with intellectual history and looking at, you know, who some of these agrarian scientists were and what they were doing would be cool. So, um, you know, it, the the primary person involved in land reform. Um, in the U.S. occupation was a man named Wolf Lebedinsky, and where he actually got a lot of his ideas, I argue, and it's actually you know a very easy argument to make when you look at these actual um, the writings that he wrote in like places like foreign affairs and, and elsewhere, were um, from um, a group of scientists associated largely with uh, Kyoto Imperial University. Um, one of the people I look at is a, a scientist named Yagi so That was why I was. And, yeah, I'm trying to figure out um, what's the best way to pursue this because it's a monster topic, you know, if I were to pursue, you know, all of, um, you know, land reform and wartime roots of it. So, um, yeah, maybe I'll find a company that that I want to focus on and and do a business history again. But uh, my sense was I wanted to start something um, which was completely different from the Hoshi book, actually, (laughs) Um, just because I'm I'm kind of uh, burnt out. You know, I think we all are during this time. And they've been working on this for a decade. So, um, which is still, it's still super interesting, but I thought, you know, let's, let's explore, um, for a little bit. That's what I felt.
1: Very cool. Well, uh, I obviously, uh, hope it won't take another decade before we see that book come out. Uh, but when, whenever that is, uh, I hope you'll come back on the podcast. Um, and I want to thank you again for being generous with your time, uh, and talking to us today, uh, and, uh, stay safe, stay well.
0: Great, thank you.